When you think of the word greatness, what comes to your mind? probably depends on what topic of greatness we're thinking about, what category we're looking at. If we're thinking about generals and military leaders, perhaps you think of Alexander the Great. He has greatness in his name. He conquered the known world at the time, and he spread Greek culture and influence abroad. His strategic mindset and knack for war was un paralleled at his time. His greatness was due to his domination over others. If we're thinking of greatness in terms of, let's say, sports, let's say basketball, perhaps we we think of Michael Jordan, who is considered by many the greatest of all time in basketball. But by what metric is his greatness defined? by the amounts of you know, points he puts up, or steals, or rebounds, or blocks, or, or championships won? Well, yes. But what we're really measuring is his domination over others in the game of basketball. Those who are great are often those who have dominated the competition, whether that's in sports or in war, or in business or in politics, those who are great are those who have dominated in their respective field. This is the metric for how greatness is often defined in our world. As we've been going through Mark, it's become evident that the disciples of Jesus Christ have adopted this kind of worldly mindset of what greatness is. Yet as we come to the scriptures even here this morning, we learn that the followers of Jesus Christ, true greatness is not measured by our domination over others for our own glory. True greatness is instead defined as something radically and entirely different altogether. Service to others for the glory of God. This brings us to Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41, where we'll explore this idea more fully and completely. If you have your copy of the scriptures, please go ahead and turn there now as we read our text this morning. Mark 9, verses 30 through 41. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. But he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servants of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. 
John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. As we come to our text here this morning, the disciples of Jesus have just failed to cast out a demon due to their lack of prayer. They failed to be dependent on God and instead look to their own status and their own ability rather than depend on God as they should in prayer. They were prayerless people. We're given the impression the disciples are filled with an overinflated view of their own greatness and do not yet realize the importance of depending on God. But as we pick up in verse 30, we will continue to see Jesus teach them what true greatness is. As they leave this place where they just failed miserably, they make their way through Galilee. But Jesus doesn't want anyone here to know of their location. Why? Why doesn't he want anyone to know where they are? 4 verse 31 tells us he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. Jesus doesn't want to be distracted by the crowds like he normally is. He wants to focus specifically now on teaching his disciples his mission so that they too might pick up on the reality that his mission extends to them. The great Messiah would be killed, but he would rise three days later. So Jesus again repeats the certainty of this mission to his disciples. The first time he told the disciples his mission was just a chapter ago. Chapter 8, verse 31. He says, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed and I will die, but I will rise. And then he repeats the same mission to the inner three in chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And then again, right here in chapter 9, verse 31. The repeated mission of Jesus is to emphasize its importance. He wants his disciples to get it, to grasp it, to dwell on it. He wants them to see with crystal clarity what, Je- what he himself must do because his mission will extend to them and to even us here this morning. So as we see the importance of Jesus' mission, I wonder, do we understand why it was so important for Jesus to be rejected, betrayed, killed, and then to rise again three days later? Could we articulate this to a coworker, a friend, a family member who doesn't know the gospel? Do we understand the importance of the gospel and fully appreciate Jesus' mission? Or are we instead like the disciples, hearing but not perceiving, seeing but not believing, having our hearts and minds set on earthly greatness instead of Christ, the gospel? In the case of the disciples, we're told here that they don't understand the saying of Jesus. 
even though he is speaking plainly to them. And they don't ask about this saying because they are afraid. What were they afraid of, we might ask? Perhaps they were afraid of being rebuked, as this has happened to them on numerous occasions as we've gone through Mark. They were rebuked in chapter 4 and in chapter 8 for their lack of understanding what Jesus was saying. But what is probably on their mind above both of these incidents is the sharp rebuke that Peter had just received for trying to correct Jesus on this exact topic. Perhaps they think this is, this is too dangerous to talk about. We just saw Peter get strongly rebuked for trying to correct Jesus on the matter of his death and resurrection. So I don't want to risk getting rebuked like he did. So while we don't know for certain, perhaps these reasons collectively contributed to their lack of effort in seeking an answer. They didn't want to risk rebuke or be thought ignorant or dumb. So instead of taking a risk and seeking to understand Jesus, they instead remained ignorant of what Jesus was repeating over and over and over again. As Jesus and the disciples continue on their journey, they eventually reach the region of Capernaum. Once they arrive at the house they were staying, Jesus asked the disciples what they were arguing about, what they were discussing. And now hopefully we're thinking, okay, maybe the disciples were speaking about what Jesus said to them and arguing about what he meant. Or, or hopefully they're discussing, why, why does Jesus need to be killed and rise again? Or hopefully they're discussing the implications of what Jesus' mission is for them. But as we already know, this isn't the case. Once Jesus asks the question, the response he gets is absolute silence. Complete and utter silence. The disciples are immediately silent and they are ashamed. Because instead of talking about what Jesus literally just said to them, they're discussing who among them is the greatest. And because of this, much like children who are silent and ashamed when caught doing something that they shouldn't be doing, so the disciples are here. And we find this contrast unsettling. Here we have Jesus talking about his certain coming rejection, his certain death, and the disciples are here arguing like little school children about who among them is the greatest. We're given the impression that the disciples are terribly insensitive, narcissistic, and filled with pride. They are consumed with themselves and this worldly idea of greatness when their Messiah is going to the cross. What is clear is that Jesus and his disciples are not on the same page. While Jesus is looking to serve the whole world by going to his death like a lamb led to the slaughter. The disciple, disciples are looking for self-promotion, power, and glory. Their lives contradict what their Messiah is about. So when asked by Jesus this piercing question, what were you arguing about? They quickly realize the inappropriateness of their conversation and are ashamed and silent. So Jesus sits down and he takes the position of a rabbi. Then he calls the 12 disciples to himself 
and he issues this radical statement to them all. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. Jesus knows what they're arguing about. And he targets their self-promoting behavior and turns their idea of greatness on its head. Those who would be great, those who would be first, must actually be last and servants of all. A radically counter-cultural message, but a message that Jesus will continue to embody even as he washes the disciples' feet and even as he serves the whole world by going to his death on the cross. In order to drive the statement home even further, Jesus then takes a little child there in the room and he brings them, him to the, the middle of this room and he places his arm around this little child and standing in the middle of all, he says to the disciples, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but him who sent me. In order to fully grasp what Jesus is saying here, this illustration we need to pay attention and understand a couple of things. First, we need to understand that Jesus is not saying, be like this child. I think sometimes we are tempted to conflate this account here with the account just a couple chapters later in Mark 10, where Jesus is saying, have childlike faith like this child. He's not saying that here. Here, he's saying, be like me and welcome little children like this. That's what true greatness looks like. Serve them. This leads to the second thing we must understand, and that is how the culture of that day viewed little children. Contrasted with our day and age where children are pretty much idolized and gushed over, the same could not be said about their culture at all. As far as the totem pole goes, the ladder of society, children were at the very, very bottom. Children had no status, no rights. They were viewed as immature, needy, dependent, and not really good to society until they had grown up. They were looked at as more of a nuisance than a help. And Jesus is saying, welcome little children, the most insignificant of them all, and serve them. This is what true greatness looks like. And as you do this, in reality, you're serving me and my father who sends me. You are serving God who deeply cares about the helpless, the needy, the dependent. And so we, as his disciples, should too. Jesus' use of the child is instructive to all of us. He wants us to serve and welcome the lowly. He wants us to serve and welcome those who do not have anything to offer us or benefit us. And he wants us to do this because he cares about them. And so we should too. Unfortunately, I don't think we always approach others with the mindset of Christ. We instead approach others with more or less the mindset of the world. The world approaches people by kind of, you know, sizing them up, right? To see whether or not this person is worth my time or effort. If this person can benefit me in some way, 
or help me advance, then sure, I'll serve them. I'll welcome them. I'll befriend them. But if they don't have anything to offer me, then no way. Why would I do that? Why would I waste my time with such a person? And if the person would be detrimental or inconvenience to me or make me uncomfortable, you know for sure I'm not wasting my time with that person. But Jesus is saying something very countercultural. Serve and welcome those who can offer nothing in return. Serve with the mentality that what you are doing is for Christ and not for self. Lose your life for Christ's sake and the gospel. Spend it serving Jesus as you serve the poor, the needy, those who have nothing to offer. For this is the path to true life and greatness. And so as Jesus encourages his disciples to follow in his footsteps, to rethink what true greatness is, so we too are encouraged to contemplate the same. And as we struggle to even do this in our church, in our daily life away, we must remember that Jesus served us and he welcomed us. When we had nothing to return or offer except our sin and our filth, and he took us in anyway, and he cleansed us, and he remade us into new creatures who are cleansed from our sins and our iniquities. So when we struggle to serve those who are unlike us, those who really don't benefit us, those who perhaps make us uncomfortable, we remember our Savior's example. And we count it a joy and a privilege to follow in the footsteps of Christ. We serve as we've been served by our Savior. Now, do the disciples understand Jesus' call for selfless service for him? Do they understand what true greatness is? Verses 38 through 41 gives evidence that this isn't the case. As they continue, John the disciple says, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. This is the only time where we have John, the apostle, speaking by himself in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And here John tells Jesus that they tried to stop a man from casting out demons because they weren't following us. He wasn't following us. Now, with the information we're given here, we are to assume that this person is a believer in Jesus. He's using Jesus' name to drive out demons. He isn't using his name in an evil or misleading way or in some type of hocus-pocus magic. We are to assume that he's doing good with the limited amount of information given. John, along with the other disciples here, clearly see a problem. No doubt part of their identity was wrapped up in the unique authority that Jesus had given them to cast out demons. However, they just failed miserably in doing that just a few verses ago due to their lack of prayer. But here we find a person who is having success in casting out demons in Jesus' name. And this brings out great jealousy in the hearts of the disciples. Why? because he wasn't a part of our group. He wasn't following us. That's the reason they tried to stop him. It wasn't because he was following Jesus. He wasn't following us. I think this is pretty telling of the disciples' orientation. 
instead of seeing their positions as servants of Jesus, they still see their position as privileged and exclusive. Instead of welcoming those who had nothing to offer and even those who were doing good deeds in Jesus' name, they instead maintained a smug attitude towards outsiders and kept, kept at distance those who threatened their perceived position. They were still failing to grasp what true greatness was, service to Christ for his kingdom. Instead, they were focused on building up their own little kingdom. So in response to the disciples' question, Jesus responds saying, don't stop him because there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. In other words, don't stop someone from doing ministry or miracles in my name just because they don't belong to our exact group. For those who do these miracles in my name are unlikely to speak evil of me. And in this case, they're operating against Satan's forces. They're on our side. And those same outsiders who do bless you and do kindness towards you because of Jesus, yes, they too will be rewarded, even if they aren't part of your exact group or affiliation. So look at those who are operating under the authority of Jesus as allies and friends. The application is immediate, I think, to our context today. We ought to recognize that gospel ministry and work is being done in our city and in this world outside of our own church and yes, even outside our own denomination. There are other faithful brothers and sisters who belong to Jesus Christ who are not necessarily a part of our own group here. And in this, we should rejoice. We should be thankful that there are other churches who hold fast to the gospel that are expanding and growing. But don't necessarily shame, share perhaps the philosophy of ministry or church polity or even denomination. We should thank God for faithful gospel preaching churches that look different than us. For they are our allies in gospel ministry, even though they don't look or operate the exact same way as us. Now, to be clear, we're talking about those who hold fast to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who hold fast to the Jesus of the Bible and the authority of scripture. We're not talking about churches that lose the gospel or distort it or lead others away from Jesus. But for those that do hold fast to the true gospel, what would be wrong to do is to do what the disciples did and to be jealous of them or to treat them with contempt or to hold a self-righteous attitude against them. Instead, we should be joyful and glad that such churches are furthering the kingdom of Christ and are operating under his authority, though they might be a different denomination or affiliation. As we close this morning looking at this text before us, how should we respond to this text? And I've already mentioned one way here, but appreciate our other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who hold fast to the true gospel, even though they're not necessarily a part of our church or affiliation. 
Give thanks that there are other churches doing gospel work. And when you meet someone who is not necessarily a part of your denomination, but holds fast to the gospel, thank them. Praise God that they're furthering the kingdom of God. Second, we must respond to this text by confessing where we adopt the world's system of greatness, where we are self-seeking and self-promoting in our behavior, rather than selfless as our Savior. This type of selfish thinking often shows itself when we are tempted to think a task beneath us. You know, I'm, I'm too good to serve in that way. I'm above that type of menial task. Or it shows itself when we are tempted to think a person below us. You know, that person just isn't worth my time or effort. They inconvenience me. They make me uncomfortable. In these ways, we've adopted a worldly mindset of greatness rather than what true greatness is defined by Jesus, our Savior. And so when we encounter this type of thinking, we must confess this as sin and remember that Jesus, who is worthy above all, took the form of a servant and he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for unworthy sinners such as ourselves. And so as followers of Jesus, we follow in his footsteps and we serve joyfully and we welcome those who have nothing to offer us. And this brings us to the last way we must respond to this text. We must have an orientation towards serving and welcoming all, and especially those who have nothing to offer in return for Christ's sake. And even as we have six new members joining this morning, I encourage you and all of us to have this mindset of Christ. Serve and welcome outsiders and insiders as they enter our doors. Serve and welcome regardless of their socioeconomic status. Don't discriminate based on wealth or status or how much a person has to offer or not offer our church. Our call is to love people because Jesus loves them and he gave up his life to save them. So let us not forget that Jesus loves the poor, the needy, the dependent, those who have nothing to offer. So let us be conveyors of that same love to all. And this also includes children, lest we forget children. We should see them not as a nuisance, but as those dearly loved by God. It's a wonderful blessing to see the many children we often have running around this building. And I want to remind us that we all have the great opportunity to let the children know that Jesus welcomes them. He loves them. He died to save them. So let's not forget that Jesus loves all people, outsiders, insiders, children, the poor, the needy, all of them. And he demonstrated this by giving up his own life to save them. Church, we have the great opportunity to convey this love to the world. So let's be faithful in fulfilling our calling. Let's close in prayer.